Hey everybody, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark, I'm here with Trevor. How you feeling today, Trevor? I feel alright, but I feel like a stress counselor who's waiting for something to happen. How are you feeling? I feel like using Chop Suey by System of a Down as alarm clock. Whoa. You know that song? <laughs> I... I don't know why you would wish that upon yourself, but that's okay. I had a roommate. I had a roommate who who used that, and it was uh, it was awful. Uh. That that's a glutton for self punishment. I should mention <laughs> to all of our nor- our regular listeners that I am on the road currently, and I don't have my normal mic set up. So if I sound a little bit funky, uh, I am currently at my grandpa's house. But my grandpa's house is my reading sanctuary. So at least I yeah. have that going for me. Do you have a reading sanctuary, Mark? Not really. No, a little bit of traveler. I think just my bed, I guess. Yeah. Well, my grandpa's house is in is on the beach. So in the spring and summer, it's like I'm just waking up, like walking to the beach, reading for a few hours, then reading in the sunset at night and everything in between. Nice fresh air in the countryside so i brought i'm looking forward to being fully caught up on reading let's put it that way i'm not going to stress for a little while after this because i'm going to get ahead nice so you have a yet another new game i think yeah i have uh, a, a, another version of something we've already done but um so yeah it's not not exactly a game but it's it's pretty interesting stuff so um first a, a question do you do you remember like the genre of posters that they had in the 80s and 90s that were like the ones that used to be in schools you know they would just say read in like giant font on it with like a celebrity yes like, it'd be yeah. like you know yeah look there kids one, uh, michael jordan one, likes books too i think that there was one in our high school that had yoda isn't there like a read poster that has yoda <laughs> from star wars yeah i don't wait in our high school had that that's vaguely high, familiar high school or middle school there was a poster there was a read poster with yoda <laughs> me and marco way that's, back yeah that, that's awesome um well i mean this this was a series of posters probably in a lot of different schools across america it's put on by the american library Foundation, and mm-hmm. it featured some great combos like I looked up the uh, history of these. There's one with Phil Collins reading Davy Crockett. There's uh, Denzel Washington reading Green Eggs and Ham. You got Alec Baldwin and Huckleberry Finn. Uh, Barbara Walters and Little Yeah, Barbara Walters and Little Prince. Mel Gibson in 1984, and uh, the Nicolas Cage one with Siddhartha. Whoa, Nicolas Cage and, and Siddhartha! What a combo! Yeah, and there's a bunch more like I. I don't know what books they were reading, but uh, there's Bette Midler, the band R.E.M., Harrison Ford, Bill Gates, LL Cool J, Britney Spears, Shaq. Uh, do you think that they do, do you think that they had input on which books they selected? I would hope so. Or maybe they would like come and like they would be like, yeah, I want to read, I want to have like this book, and then like the people at the at you know in control of the content would be like, mm, we're gonna give you Mark Twain instead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like the literary version of like the Got Milk campaign. Right. Definitely. Yeah. <clears throat> well, so one of the best ones of these 
featured a, a barefoot David Bowie wearing like a Letterman jacket. And you're just looking cool with a cool pose. You should look it up right now if you got your phone. But he's okay. reading he's reading The Idiot by Dostoevsky. Ooh. And so I came across an article about David Bowie, about, you know, there was an exhibit at the Art Gallery of Ontario um, mm-hmm. in 2013. It was just called David Bowie Is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's full of different costumes and artifacts and all that stuff from his life. And um, I think it's been a moving exhibit at other museums since. But anyways, like, so one of the things about Bowie was that he was a voracious reader. Like, legend, legend says, I don't know, he was like a book a day sort of guy, you know? Um, An Art Garfunkel type. Yeah, yeah. So they kind of wrapped that up into the exhibit. And I think they had something to do with like his favorite books and everything. They maybe had some copies. But at some point he was asked, you know, while he was still alive about what his top 100 must read list was. And, uh, you know, I brought it, I brought it here today. So, and we have the curators, um, Jeffrey Marsh and Victoria Brokes to thank for this list. Okay. I think it was from 2008. David Bowie's so top you want 100. To, yeah, you want to take a guess at any? Uh, is the idiot on there? I don't think it was. Well, that's kind of uh, <laughs> I have to go back and look now. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's not. If the idiot's not on there, then that would suggest that they didn't have an option in their suggested read. Let's ask this. Is there any Dostoevsky on there? No, I just looked it up. There isn't. His name doesn't show up. But So this list, it spans from uh, the oldest book is the Iliad, okay. 800 BC. Uh, the newest book, I think this was an interview from 2008. So it, it's a book from 2008. It's um, the Age of American Unreason by Susan Jacoby in 2008. Okay. Um, so there are some books on here that we have covered. Actually, there's three that you've covered and none that I've covered. So you're closer Whoa. to Bowie's like, taste. I'm closer to Bowie. Yeah, he's got... Uh, <laughs> he's, I just got he's one got, step uh, closer to the man from, from the man who fell to earth. <laughs> He's he's got the uh, Master and Margarita, nice Bulgakov. He's got On the Road, okay, and he's got uh, Madame Bovary as well. Oh, okay. Well, that's a uh, that's why I read Madame Bovary because it just shows up too much. <laughs> yeah, now you can relate. Um, but I highlighted some here that were also books that we maybe talked about. He's got mm-hmm. White Noise on there, Don DeLillo. Nice. He has Confederacy of Dunces, so we filled our quota for talking about it this episode. Nice, uh, nice. He's got a Mishima book. Have you read The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. That's one of his, like, that's one of his, like, Western crossovers. Like, a lot of people, if they know Mishima at all, they'll be like, yeah, Sailor Who Fell from Grace from the Sea, but it's not one of his, like, masterworks. But it is very, yeah. um, it's very on-the-nose, like, autobiographical, so that's kind of cool. Nice. Um, 
there's let me see i think there's more that we've, we've talked about one of the interesting things there's only two uh there's only two authors here oh he's got lolita on there as i lay dying great okay. gatsby mm-hmm. and uh, i think that's it for stuff that we've maybe talked about before there's only two authors on here that have more than one book though oh like he gave authors two books yeah which and one of those two so there's two, two by Anthony Burgess. So okay, so one is the Clockwork, Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Yeah, and the other is called Earthly Powers from 1980. That's funny because I I feel like uh, Anthony Burgess is, even though I don't know anything about him, his popularity would you would think I don't know like I've only heard of a Clockwork Orange and that's it like. I guess he wasn't a one hit wonder to Bowie, but. It kind of seemed like he would be. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to... I guess it's hard when you just have something blow up that much. And I mean, the movie just took it to another crazy level. Right. Yeah. So you got you got two by Anthony Burgess. Um, and having the honor of having, th- I think, three books on this list is uh, none other than George Orwell. Okay, so 1984... Yep. You didn't say coming up for air, which I've covered, so I'm disappointed that Bowie didn't say coming up for air. Did he Not say did he say down and out in Paris and London? Nope. What about Animal Farm? Nope. Okay, I'm kinda glad that Animal Farm <laughs> isn't on there because it gets more praise than it deserves. Uh <laughs> Burmese days? No, I and uh, I think that's strike three, so I'll just give them to you. They got Damn. the road, the road to Wigan Pier. Oh yeah, so, yeah, I've heard of that. I've not yeah. heard of this. 19, mm-hmm. 1937. and you've also got Inside the Whale and other essays from nineteen sixty two. Okay, yeah, that's like his most famous essay collection. Another really good Orwell novel that no one talks about enough is called Keep the Aspidistra Flying. That's a very good book too. What? Okay. <laughs> so. Uh, of course, I did some numbers. I crunched some numbers on on this list of too. Like Break I it down. With, give uh, us the, give us the data, Mark. So, if we go by decade, he's got six books from the two thousands. But I mean, he was interviewed in two thousand eight, so I guess that's not really fair. Uh, hmm. He got eight from the nineteen nineties, sixteen from the eighties, and uh, hmm. nineteen eighty four and nineteen eighty are his two favorite years. Interesting. As far he's got six books from each year, hmm. um, and then thirteen from the seventies, twenty-one from the sixties. A lot of his, a lot of his reading was from that. Um, let's see, eight from the fifties, five from the forties, ten from the thirties, and uh, doesn't go that much farther past the nineteen hundreds. He's got Madame Bovary on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got Inferno, um, the Divine Comedy, mm-hmm. but that's kind of it. He, he's mostly, uh, you know, twentieth century reader. So he jumps from that, th- from that back into the Iliad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nothing in between, all garbage. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I noticed looking at this list. First of all, there's a ton of stuff I've never fucking heard of, and that's good 
because uh, you know it gives me some things to check out. Right, recommended uh, by Bowie. Yeah, Bowie Neen. but there's there's also seems to be a ton a ton of nonfiction. Oh, interesting. Big time nonfiction reader. Yeah, and oh. there's also there's a lot there's a lot of nonfiction books on here that you can tell are like about music, which is mm -hmm. pretty cool. Um, let's see. Sweet Soul Music, Rhythm and Blues and the Southern Dream of Freedom by Peter Goralnik. Hmm, that sounds um, cool. Nowhere to Run, The Story of Soul Music by Jerry Hershey. Hmm. The Life and Times of Little Richard. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, so he's reading like other musicians' biographies and stuff. Nice. I don't know what the hell this is. The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Whoa. <laughs> by julian well, he, james 19 he was getting into some heavy stuff yeah what about does it happen to have it probably doesn't have by date right like when he read it no he he wasn't uh, at like the same level as art garfunkel as, and not the same i was gonna say like i would love to look up what bowie was reading pre and po pre and post 9-11 yeah i know that that's what i was looking for but couldn't find it we need more people like I guess we're obsessing. just gonna have to we're gonna have to assume what existential crisis he was having when he was reading uh, the breakdown of the mind or whatever there's a couple more like that in that same tone um, transcendental magic it's doctrine and ritual by okay. Eliphas, Eliphas Levi from 1896 that's hey crazy. that's pre that's pre 1900 that's 19th century. oh I missed that one uh well, another one on on having no head zen and the rediscovery of the obvious by douglas harding i love the i love the type of titles that some nonfiction books have you know they give like that they give that little pithy like almost pun like actual title and then they're like just like that one that you just yeah. said like it's zen blah 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 <laughs> and it's like but it, we're really talking about this yeah you got to have those, a colon in there. Those titles are the, are some of the easiest to make up too, you know? Like you could be like, yeah. you know, the page master's son on keeping libraries <laughs> in Southeast Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So they're also uh, interesting to note a couple magazines. He, he kind of skirted the rules possibly and threw a couple magazines in here, something called raw uh, from the wow. 80s and Viz from the late 70s. Interesting. Yeah, he liked his magazines. Uh, what else is here? The Dorothy Parker Reader. Oh, yeah. He yeah, of, like, some, some collections and stuff like that. Private Eye Magazine. Private Eye? Oh, that's surprising. That's really surprising. Private Eye Magazine is... Um, in the United Kingdom, Private Eye is like the conservative magazine. Really? Yeah, it's like the like one time I when I first moved to London, I asked people what was liberal and what was um, what was like conservative, and then someone told me Private Eye was conservative, and I was kind of looking for something more on like the centrist conservative side of things, but Private Eye is like intensely right wing. Kind of. <laughs> hmm, maybe they that. maybe they pivoted to that after Bowie was into it. Maybe, I don't know. maybe, but maybe he was just we'll you know. Trying to get perspective. Yeah. 
Um, I guess it no, it's satirical. Yeah, it's, the, it's satirical and current affairs, but I feel like there was something about it that was like sort of right wing. Anyway, hmm. I famously I completely <laughs> effed up what a spanner was, so I guess don't take my authority. Oh on, yeah, on the United don't United. remind them. Uh, oh, there's one more I thought was interesting. It's uh, another one with a with a colon in it. It's called Silence Lecturing Lectures and Writing by John Cage. You know, famous for his right song with no music. So I wonder if it's a book with no words in it. Oh, but um. Yeah, that's terrible. I, I hate <laughs> I hate that that he like is. I hate like uh, whatever it's called, four thirty three or whatever. I yeah, that's so stupid. His or his orchestra of crowd noise. Yeah, it's subversive, that's Mark. Awful to me. Nah, I'm not. I'm not about it. You're not. On, you're not on board. No. So so that was David Bowie's library, and I'll try and look into some more stuff and see if we can get some pictures of his actual library or whatever. We'll see. But I'll, I'll post the link to this article too. It was cool. And and then one one more thing from the article that I thought was interesting is uh, since they, for this like exhibit at the museum, since they wanted to display like his uh, stage costumes and all that, they had to make custom mannequins because he has such a like skinny waist. He's got like a 26 inch waist. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah <laughs> they had to make they had to go to the mannequin factory and order the bowie yeah <laughs> so yeah there's another version of uh celebrity bookworms i'll look for some more celebrity bookworms nice and if anyone knows any famous celebrity bookworms out there let us know yeah so this is episode 31 odd number so i'm going first um, correct yeah and so this i'll start off by saying this is gonna be a tough one uh and you'll see why shortly Interesting. okay so i always i sort of always start with a question um do you do you remember when you became you know old enough that you could go off on your own you know like ride your bike places or whatever when not really be under supervision maybe like summer vacation when you were 12 or 13 is that around that time maybe yeah i mean i don't know maybe i'm showing off how sheltered i was but i don't really think like i was able to go off on my own in my own neighborhood from early childhood but the true sense of freedom like the first like 100 percent like sense of freedom that i remember feeling was actually like in early like first year of college kind of realizing that i was completely on my own but yeah i mean i could i could play outside until it was dark out from when i was like 10 but what about breaking curfew and stuff remember like was, did you ever do that when you were like a, a young teenager i was too good i think i said on the podcast before <laughs> i never really broke any rules except the one night that i snuck out of my house to go watch akira okay then we're i guess we're talking about that night all right, um, then I was like 15. Okay, that still still works for for where I'm where I'm going. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think I think a lot of people would relate to that or think you know those are like some of the best moments of your life. Like, uh, I guess even just really being that age, you know. Yeah. Um, but I remember uh, venturing like through the woods with some friends back when I was probably 12. Maybe I think so. 
um, there was a rock quarry near my house. So we would go out there and like throw rocks down the, you know, 200, 250 foot drop to the bottom. And it was literally the most fun thing in the world. You know, one, cause we're like breaking rules or whatever, trespassing, but also like all the entropy of, of hucking a rock, you know, down, <laughs> down, a, down a cliff. It's, it's, it's awesome. I recommend it. But, um, it was also around the time that like the Blair Witch Project came out. Nice. Whatever year that was. Was that like 2001? Uh, I'm not sure. It but, was, um, yeah, it was pretty early. There was like out near that quarry, there was like a decrepit, decrepit, like abandoned building. Mm-hmm. And we all, we would like, my friends and I would like dare each other to go in and all that, you know, that, that sort of dynamic. Course. There's all this weird stuff there. There's a graffiti and beer cans and just stuff that were outside of our world, you know. Uh, we just didn't like know about. And that's you know the sort of thing where, like, I was saying all the all the social dynamics and everything are so different than what they become when you're an adult. Um, I guess some things stay though. Uh, but the book, so the book I read this week brought me kind of right back into that world, and that's partly due to the book itself. Um, but maybe more so because this is probably the like the foundational author from my like love of reading. Hmm, okay. And I know it's the same similar story for you. Uh, so I'll just say uh, before giving it away, you know, hundreds of millions of books sold, almost 60 novels, 200 plus short stories, like a true <laughs> household name. And so today I want to talk Stephen King. And his novella, The Body. Well, I've never read The Body. But you, I'm sure, have you seen the movie Stand By Me? Yes. That's The Body. Okay, okay. So, and and like I'm going to say, I'm going to get into it, but the book and the movie are so intertwined. They're, they're Both of them were almost perfectly executed that I'm going to talk about them interchangeably. Like they work so well together. Nice. You know, there's like good debate. I feel like you could definitely surprise. I I happen to know that Stand by Me was a Stephen King story, but Stephen King is one of those authors where you can surprise people that he's what's behind the movie. Like so many people, so many people don't know that Shawshank Redemption has anything to do with Stephen King. So, uh, so. Yeah, the, the the book the book that the body is in is the same book as Shawshank. So this oh, okay. is the short story collection. This is from the short story collection called Different Seasons from 1982. It, does that also contain Green Mile? No, it's got Shawshank. It's got Aft Pupil, which was its own movie in 1998. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Stand By Me. And there's one other story. I don't think it was ever made into anything, but just based on the success of <laughs> this book. I mean, it's that like, that's responsible for so much. And it's, it's crazy how, how, I don't know. King has that sort of power and that sort of the way he writes can translate so well to, to another medium. That might be but, part of the secret that, that it has, it has like little, it has kind of a more transitional flow into narrative and film versus like someone being like oh how do you capture like the 
ennui of Dostoevsky. It's like Stephen King is like just writes, you know, good events and good stories, so it's easy yeah. to film. <laughs> um, and so I, I I wasn't gonna talk too much about King, like the man or his biography or whatever. I mean, he's so well known. It's kind of I don't know. Um, but you know, this podcast instead, I'll say this podcast probably exists because of King, like mm -hmm. Trevor and I have just been hit huge fans for a long time. You know, uh, his dark tower series has been one of the things we've like talked about the most. Right. Uh, but that's and, probably for another episode. <laughs> and I think King is also a contributor to that thing I've talked about on the, on the podcast before about like, uh, he definitely tumbles down the fear of like page count. You know, like once you've read it, which is a thousand pages, all of a sudden Count of Monte Cristo seems surmountable because you've read yeah. other things that are a thousand pages. Yeah, and he's got those short chapters that uh, help you out. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so the movie for this book was a huge ass. You know, it's got uh, the Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, uh, all those kids, you know. The, the book's slightly different, it, really, really slightly different, but, you know, it's it's this great coming-of-age story in, like, 140 pages. It's, like, a total breeze to read. Um, and so, like I said, I'm going to talk about the book and the movie kind of interchangeably. They're both great. Uh, we should probably throw up a Twitter poll as to uh, which is better. <laughs> which was better, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, like the, the premise of this book is very basic, you know, it's like, you want to, you want to see a dead body? It's, it's, it's four, four young boys in the fictional town of Castle Rock, which is like a Stephen King staple of, you know, using some made up town in Maine. And that's mm -hmm. the, the same town as the dead zone in Cujo. Uh, so these four, four kids go on a journey to see a dead body. Like uh, one of them overhears his brother talking about it. There's been this like kid that's missing, this kid that's the same age as them that was missing, and uh, his brother and their friends like found him because they like would steal cars and go on joy rides and stuff. So they didn't want to tell the cops because they would get found out for that. But then the kids decide that they want to like go check it out, and they, instead of hanging out in their treehouse, they want to you know go on this little journey down the railroad and and find the dead body. And so like they carry this whole mix of fear and excitement with them along the way and like they exist in this sort of uh self-sustaining perpetual motion kind of loop of dares and peer pressure but also like youthful innocence and all that it's uh i mean stephen king just really good at coming up with characters and yeah, the story, the story sort of goes against the old saying of like, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey, because the destination this one is pretty damn impactful, too. Mm -mm. Which is a rarity for King. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it kind of made me, when I was when I was thinking about this, it made me think of, uh, you were talking about that pension story from a Slow Learner. Mm-hmm. With like the group of kids, the ragtag yeah, misfits the, and all that. The, the secret integration. Yeah. When Pension was trying to be king for a hot second. Yeah. <laughs> so it's got that dynamic to it. Like it's kind of like it and, you know, the group of kids and all that. 
Uh, so you got the main character, Gordy, who's uh, that's Will Wheaton character in the movie. He's like the main character. He's uh, he's narrating from the perspective of an adult who's now, you know, Gordon. And so he's looking back on this experience of this, you know, this couple days in time. And he's, you know, he was neglected by his parents because his older brother was killed during basic training for the army. And, you know, his friends all have their own kind of baggage. You've got Chris, who was uh, River Phoenix. And he, you know, he comes from a family of abusive alcoholics. You got Teddy, that was Corey Feldman. And he was, like, disfigured by his, his veteran father, who had a PTSD from the war. Hmm. And uh, lastly, you've got Vern, who was Jerry O'Connell, who, you know, he doesn't have that much going on with his family life, but he was, like, I guess he bullied by his older brother. And uh, it's it's from him that it's from his older brother that we find out about the uh, the dead body. And so it's it's set in 1960, but it's really kind of timeless. Like it's not uh it's not epic really, but it just, mm-hmm. it just feels really real. But like um, so they're you know the journey that they're they're just going on a really long walk. Like do you remember do you remember doing that? Oh, yeah. Even if you're I not remember. going anywhere cool. Yeah, I remember the time our group of friends, I'm sure you went on a few of these walks, Mark, where it was like there we had a group of friends that were fully independent, but at the same time weren't old enough to drive yet. So it would be like, yeah, yeah we're going to go over Paul's house or whatever and be like, well, that's like a four hour walk. And then we would just walk. <laughs> Which yeah. was like, that was like a thing for right before we had cars. I guess maybe that's the moment that you were describing earlier when we were fully independent, where it's like, yeah, I'm just going to walk to my friend's house. It's like six hours away. Yeah, that's kind of what I was targeting because uh, I remember, definitely remember stuff like that. I would come up with stupid games like, you know, you jump into the woods or whatever whenever a car is going by. Uh, and if you remember our friend brandon used to he always used to run ahead of the group and then hide somewhere like in the bushes or something like waiting yeah. for the group to catch up and scare the shit out of us yeah that sounds like something <laughs> that, king, that sounds like something that king would write yeah um but yeah like stuff like that you know like uh admiring or being afraid of your friends siblings and parrots or like you know you hear about things or you or feel like a misfit there's like a a lot of different emotions and feelings and experiences covered in this book. And, and, you know, it's a great example of the character building. It's like a staple of King's work. And, you know, we talk all the time about like the characters and under the dome and, you know, how, how by the end of it, you know, a hundred, hundred people and they're all distinct. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, this, this story really doesn't have that many characters, but he's able to work with a different limitation of like, you know, a short novella and without a really complicated premise and still make it work. Uh, so if you've seen the book or sorry, seen the movie, read the book, you know, about the like iconic train scene. Right. And so I want to just read a quick section from that. It's like, you know, the cover of the book is a train and, that's on the movie poster and all that. It's a, it's a big moment. And this is from Gordy's perspective. After looking down at that endless series of cross ties for a while, with a glimpse of running water between each pair, 
I started to feel dizzy and disoriented. Each time I brought my foot down, part of my brain assured me it was going to plunge through into space, even though I could see it was not. I became acutely aware of all the noises inside me and outside me, like some crazy orchestra tuning up to play. The steady thump of my heart, the blood beat in my ears like a drum being played with brushes, the creak of sinews like the strings of a violin that had been tuned radically upward, the steady hiss of the river, the hot hum of a locust digging into tight bark, the monotonous cry of a chickadee, and somewhere far away a barking dog, chopper maybe. The mildewy smell of the Castle River was strong in my nose. The long muscles in my thighs were trembling. I kept thinking how much safer it would be, probably faster as well, if I just got down on my hands and knees and scuttered along that way. But I wouldn't do that. None of us would. If the Saturday matinee movies down to the gym had taught us anything, it was that only losers crawl. It was one of the central tenets of the gospel according to Hollywood. Good guys walk <laughs> firmly upright. And if your sinews are creaking like overtuned violin strings because of the adrenaline rush going on in your body, and if the long muscles in your thighs are trembling for the same reason, why, so be it. I had to stop in the middle of the trestle and look up at the sky for a while. That dizzy feeling had been getting worse. I saw phantom cross ties. They seemed to float right in front of my nose. Then they faded out, and I began to feel okay again. I looked ahead and saw I had almost caught up with Vern, who was slow-poking along worse than ever. Chris and Teddy were almost all the way across. And although I've since written seven books about people who can do such exotic things as read minds and precognate the future, that was when I had my first and last psychic flash. I'm sure that's what it was. How else to explain it? I squatted and made a fist around the rail on my left. It thrummed in my hand. It was thrumming so hard that it was like gripping a bundle of deadly metallic snakes. You've heard it said, his bowels turn to water. I know what that phrase means, exactly what it means. It may be the most accurate cliche ever coined. I've been scared since, badly scared, but I've never been as scared as I was in that moment, holding that hot live rail. It seemed that for the moment all my works below throat level just went limp and lay there in an internal faint. A thin stream of urine ran listlessly down the inside of one thigh. My mouth opened. I didn't open it, it opened by itself the jaw dropping like a trap door from which the hinge pins had suddenly been removed. My tongue was plastered suffocatingly against the roof of my mouth. All my muscles were locked. That was the worst. My worst went limp, but my muscles were in a kind of dreadful lock bolt and I couldn't move at all. It was only for a moment, but in the subjective time stream, it seemed forever. All sensory input became intensified as if some power surge had occurred in the electrical flow of my brain cranking everything up from 110 volts to 220. I could hear a plane passing in the sky somewhere near and had time to wish I was on it, just sitting in a window seat with a Coke in my hand and gazing down at the shining line of a river whose name I did not know. I could see every little splinter and gouge in the tarred cross tie I was squatting on. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see the rail itself with my hand still clutched around it, glittering insanely. The vibration from that rail sank so deeply into my hand that when I took it away, it still vibrated, the nerve endings kicking each other over and over, over again, tingling the way a hand or foot tingles when it has been asleep and is starting to wake up. I could taste my saliva, suddenly all electric and sour and thickened to curds along my gums. And worst, somehow most horrible of all, I couldn't hear the train yet. 
could not know if it was rushing at me from ahead or behind or how close it was. It was invisible. It was unannounced except for that shaking rail. There was only that to advertise its imminent arrival. An image of Ray Brower, deadfully mangled and thrown into a ditch somewhere like a ripped open laundry bag, reeled before my eyes. We would join him, or at least Vern and I would, or at least I would. We'd inv we had invited ourselves to our own funerals. The last thought broke the paralysis and I shot to my feet. I probably would have looked like a jack-in-the-box to anyone watching, but to myself I felt like a boy in underwater slow motion, shooting up not through five feet of air, but rather up through 500 feet of water, moving slowly, moving with a dreadful languidness as the water parted grudgingly. But at last I did break the surface. I screamed, Trey! <laughs> <laughs> so this is, like yeah, a that's a scene when they're, they're crossing like a, a bridge and, you know, a railroad bridge and the uh, train comes when they're halfway. Like a great. ripped open bag of laundry. <laughs> classic, classic King. I wonder if King ever almost got hit by a train. We know he got hit by a van. So there's something out there. Uh, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I think there's something about like maybe his, his family has told him that he witnessed like one of his friends get run over by a train and he like, he doesn't have the memory himself. Hmm. And, you know, the timeline of this book like lines up, you know, he was born in 1940, I think 47 or so, something like that. So like he would have been, right. he would have been a young teenager around the time of this book in, in Maine, you know, I wonder how much of it is, you know, from his life and stuff. Nice. I don't know. <laughs> well part so, of it also uh, part of it also sounds autobiographical like in you know he's talking about how the writer grew up um and you know i've since read wrote seven books about psychic flashes and stuff like that like i wonder if at the publishing of this story he had written seven novels yeah it could be i mean uh it's it's crazy how he can do that though you know all like so many of his books are like directly related to him like as far as where they take place and it's a lot of them are about writers like that is, is that is kind of this thing um, a theme a theme yeah yeah and he's, he's able to do that so many times and keep it fresh for for a lot of them um but yeah to, to summarize the body it's, it's short but it's it's a book about um it's about friendship it's about growing up to become yourself and it's a strange way of of, of doing that you know <laughs> these kids like uh everything kind of changes when they when they see the the body and you know death becomes r like real to them and um i don't know but like like no matter what happens to you during that time in your life it's going to shape you um yeah. you know in a small town like castle rock or somewhere else you you know you knew someone who or were someone who had like a rough family life you you were told you were told not to do stuff and then you did it in secret. You, uh, you were out to prove yourself in whatever arena, you know? Uh, so you, you'll definitely find something to relate to in this book. Nice. Yeah. Makes so, you, I mean, I it makes you think like, I mean, there's versions of that in every childhood, but it makes you think, you know, there's, there's almost probably more books out there for people who grow up in small towns than for people who grow up as like, you know, city slickers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe these are just the books that 
get attracted to us. Maybe. Nice. Um, so I'll just close out with a couple one-star reviews, and there weren't too many for this book. Um, user Shauna says, too many F-bombs couldn't get through. And that's true. <laughs> the kids are, you know, they're not allowed to swear. So obviously when they're alone with each other, they're swearing constantly. And that's hey, just that, how it is. That's accurate. That's 100% accurate. Yeah. So uh, I got another one here. Uh, I used to be a big King fan, but as I add to my collection, I'm really beginning to dislike his writing and style. Maybe it's because I don't like his characters. This book is a coming-of-age story of boys before they become men. Here the kids seem so ignorant for their age, but then again, none of his characters ever seem that bright. I'm starting to feel that he doesn't have very high opinions of people in our society. Hmm. I don't know what to think about that. Yeah, I don't know about I think his that. characters, they, <laughs> they can be dumb at times, but they're also facing a lot of supernatural uh, <laughs> stuff. Situ situations <laughs> that most people aren't in. Yeah. Easy to be an observer. Uh, anyways, so that was my shitty book report. Nice, the good body job. by Stephen King. Part of Different Seasons, 1982. Uh, okay, so for my book report this week, I'm going to start uh, also in Mark style with a question. Um, Mark, tell me your general impressions of the painter Edward Munch. Uh, Do you know, I know of him? The scream, exactly. And the that's scream. probably it. Right. So this is it's a you're gonna learn a little bit more about him today, but it's also just a basic fact of life that people who know anything about Munch are at least gonna know about the scream. And the scream is a famous painting by a Norwegian painter named Edward Munch. You've probably seen it on tote bags, coffee mugs, keychains, and uh, lots of other iconographic um, places where you find random artwork. Um, yeah, and there's also been a lot of uh, different memes created from it. Like uh, there was one with Lemon Grab from uh, Adventure Time. <laughs> Screaming. Adventure Time. Yeah, I, think, I don't know if I've seen that, but now I have to look it up. Um, yeah. But today's my book today is a like a very a book I was really excited about and it's and it was a book that as soon as I heard about it, even a little bit about it, I jumped on Amazon and bought it immediately. So I and it's a fresh book. It's from 2017, and this is this is me bringing another of our authors, uh, an author I've already discussed on the podcast. I'm bringing him back into the fold for a second time, and. This is a book that I think that you'll find unique, and I don't know if you even know it exists, Mark. But is this uh, someone that I did an impression of? Yes, pretty recently. <laughs> yes. So in our recent podcast, <laughs> you did a, your amazing Norwegian accent, and I was just so fascinated as soon as I heard that Carl Nosgaard, the famous Norwegian novelist that we all know and sometimes love and sometimes hate. Uh, he wrote a book called So Much Longing in So Little Space from 2017. It was translated into English in 2019, and it is his attempt at writing an analysis and short biography of Edvard Munch, his fellow Norwegian artist. Um, so what do you get from the impression that, you know, someone like Nosgaard would write 
about another famous Norwegian? I would probably guess that Munch had some sort of tortured past and he was, uh, <laughs> uh, had some, some, a lot of stuff going on in, in his life. Yeah. Well, as, as do we all, but, um, yeah, I mean, as just as soon as I heard the notion that such like someone who I respect for their, um, taking the symbol and making it into complex and readable, but then he also wrote, um, this kind of short book on Munch, I was just completely fascinated. And uh, I think that this book is a very unique work of art in itself. I think that possibly it takes a Nosgard fan to appreciate it because I think that I, I read some, It what let's just say it wasn't hard to find one star reviews of this book. And, <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, cause as many uh, people have a problem with, Nosgard in the way he writes or maybe the reasons why he's famous it's also you know interesting that he would say okay and now I'm also going to express myself by writing my particular style and imposing it onto a very famous painter but what is amazing about this book and I'll go into detail a little bit about how it came together is that um, the reason that it came together is because the Munch Museum in in Oslo, Norway, basically they approached like a few different famous people for over the years. They wanted people to do exhibitions where they chose from their selection what paintings they would display. So this book, this book is coming together because a museum comes to Nosgaard and says, you should be the curator for our exhibition. And he's basically like, I'm just a famous writer. I have, I don't know the first thing about you know being an art curator so basically yeah yeah so basically the museum says let all of the technical kind of like crazy things that most people don't know about art you know they give him basically like an assistant curator and it's like she's the one who's really going to do like the down and dirty stuff of how you really get it onto the walls but he's the one who's basically saying from my perspective, out of all these thousands of paintings that they have in the Munch Museum, these are the ones that I would display and why. Um, okay. So that's how the book comes together. It's very interesting. And I'm going to read just the back. It's published by Penguin Random House. It's just a, like a like a 250-page book of Nosgaard talking about Munch. I'm just going to read the back <laughs> quote. In so much longing and so little space, Carl Ove Nosgaard sets out to understand the enduring and awesome power of Edward Munch's work by training his gaze on the landscapes that inspired Munch and speaking firsthand with other contemporary artists, including Ansel Kiefer, for whom Munch's legacy looms large. Bringing together art history, biography, and memoir, Nosgaard tells a passionate, freewheeling, and pensive story about not just one of history's most significant painters, but the very meaning of choosing the artist's life as he himself has done, including reproductions of some of Munch's most emotionally and psychologically intense works chosen by Nosgaard. This utterly original and ardent work of criticism will delight and educate both experts and novices of literature and the visual arts alike. So there's a little bit of ego stroking there in the Penguin Random House blurb, <laughs> especially the last sentence, utterly original and ardent work of criticism. Um, but what is so cool about this book, and it, it gets, a, it's, it, they are right in saying that it's part memoir and part art history and part biography of Munch, but it's also really cool because y y you know how we kind of delved into the first 
um, my struggle novel and how he has that way of sort of slipping from the mundane into the incredibly like deeply psychological in yeah. a very in a very simple way so i would say actually i mean this is kind of a bold statement because i'm not done with the with the with his original biographical novels and the first one is is such an excellent book but i'm going to say that this book that i'm holding in my hand right now is probably my favorite nosgard book i think really? that yeah i mean i think that there is a certain value in being a fan of his and realizing that I'm going to read, but I think that his writing kind of has a value in being like pulled out of himself and onto like a nonfiction subject because we've already been engaged in such a way that we appreciate his day-to-day memoirism. Right. So then on top of that, yeah, on top of that, this almost in like, you almost feel like you're getting little paragraphs and little like half snippets and half chapters that are a continuation of his memoirs. But at the same time, it's imposed on a subject matter where he's purposely exploring the meaning behind some of Munch's less no- lesser known paintings and also like the meaning of creation and art itself. So it's a little bit more like focused than basically just saying, okay, I'm going to tell you about my life. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was enthralled as much as I am with his normal writing, but it was towards something that was just like really like a crazy subject to learn about. So let me say a little bit about, I mean, I mean, there's probably valid criticism behind the idea that people say like, oh, I didn't really learn that much about Munch from this book. And I think that if you're someone who's picking up this book, that you're probably a Nosgard fan who is also an art fan like you want to understand something about munch but also about nosgard i mean i guess you can be like oh i didn't learn that much about him but i feel like i learned a lot about munch emotionally more than i did biographically so i have a couple questions okay go ahead one what's the cover it is not it is not nosgard's face (laughs) okay is it the screen (laughs) No, no, it's not the scream. Oh, okay. Nosgard is very, very careful and almost there's a there's a period of Munch's life that I now know was part of the was in the eighteen nineties that is like his fame period where it's like he paints the scream, he paints another um painting called Ashes and like a few uh, and one called Jealousy. There's like a few of his iconographic images that are like, okay, this is like the peak of my fame and actually mm-hmm. what what nosgard does in his exhibition not only because the the museum in oslo doesn't always have those incredibly famous images in rotation he basically and i think brilliantly discusses his early works from he uh he discusses his early works and some of his more obscure stuff so he basically goes from a young painter who's taking example from the the kind of style of the times where he's in painting impressionistically there are early munch paintings when he's like 18 and 19 years old where it just looks like somebody who is trying to paint a scene in front of them like happy trees happy barn mm-hmm. like you know bob, sort ross. Of like bob ross style <laughs> bob ross bob ross but with edward munch you know from the yeah. from the 1800s and then this change kind of slowly happens where and and an interesting kind of 
supposition that Nosgard puts on top of it is that um, Munch came from like a relatively well-off family. He wasn't somebody who was, he wasn't a Van Gogh who was like struggling with mental health and like, you know, poor until he was famous or whatever. He came from a relatively well-off family. His lineage relates directly back to someone called P.A. Munch, which I think most Norwegians would know as like one of the most famous historians in, in Norwegian history. So he kind of, there is hints in this book that Nosgaard kind of starts, supposes that he um, he had a sort of, he was carrying a torch in a way that allowed him to break tradition with some of his other peers. You know, people were breaking traditions at the time, but he thinks that Munch might have had like a little bit more courage because of the, the torch he was bearing or the chip that was on his shoulder. But another interesting thing that I learned about Munch um, the, the bit of biographical knowledge in this book is that he grows up um, completely fr from life beginning to end. He never like married and never had a family. So he, and, and kind of is anti-relationship in his life almost to a fault where he like was pretty much always alone, which is actually really interesting because a lot of his paintings and this is what Nosgaard surmises as well, is that a lot of his paintings are of his inner world and kind of more representative. As he moves farther and farther in his career, his paintings actually get simpler. So like to the point when you're at the screen in the 1890s and all those paintings that are, were representative of one single emotion, he's kind of going from these complex scenes that were like, you know, he was trying to represent light correctly and trying to like do all that to a more sketch painterly style. Um, and he was kind of a champion of the idea that if you do things quickly and then if you do things kind of with the emotional fire of that moment of creation, then you're actually closer to the emotion than you would be, you know, perfecting it like a Renaissance master. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of slowly came out the more and more that I read the book. I was like, wow, like this guy is definitely onto something. I mean, I think that it's evident in his most famous paintings, but also in some of his more lesser known paintings that like, you know, the scream is like, you can't like perfect that emotion. It's like kind of the idea of like, how does the painter remove himself between like the brush and the paint? Like, how can you get there like as fast as possible? So a lot of his paintings were were basically performances that happened within hours um so yeah there's like a lot of really cool like philosophical stuff about why do people make art how do people make art another really uh the very beginning of the book i thought was really cool and i'm going to read a quote from page 23 here that um Nosgard initially tackles the subject just to, because it's such a big subject to tackle he and in his typical style he's very sort of honest like he begins some paragraphs with, with being like so what the hell am i supposed to say <laughs> yeah know? i've got so many i've got just yeah. just based on the format of this book i have so many questions yeah it's really good it's really to... it's really fascinating so i will read uh, this paragraph this is um and then Nosgard, I'm going to hit you with questions. <laughs> okay, so questions after this. So Nosgaard, he's tackling the idea that if you really look at all of Munch's work, which would be common among a lot of painters, he observes that Munch, throughout his painting, from the very first to the very last when he died in the 40s, he painted trees always. So trees were in all of his paintings, almost as a universal theme. So 
Nazgar is basically just saying, what does that mean? And here we, and here I'll read these few paragraphs. If I were to paint that tree, not only would all the different ways of seeing it lie between us and the tree, but also all the different ways of depicting it. The trees of the Baroque, the trees of the Impressionism, the trees of naturalism, the trees of symbolism, the trees of modernism and postmodernism, Van Gogh's trees, David Hockney's trees, Anya Berger's trees, Peter Doig's trees, Vanessa Baird's trees, but also the trees of natural science book, the trees of brochures, advertising banking services, the trees in video games, the trees photographed for newspapers and magazines, or the trees of nature programs on TV, or even the trees of children's drawings. Many had painted oaks before, Olaf Haig wrote in a poem. Nevertheless, Munch painted an oak. The line captures the essence of Edward Munch's work, since it says so much about why he painted, what he was attempting to do, and the way he painted trees can be as good as an entry point as any into his art, for he painted trees from his very first painting in 1880 until his last in 1944, and faced with each and every one of them, he found himself in the situation described by Deleuze, which is another... Uh, painter theorist that he talks about earlier in the chapter, concluding the battle between cliche and possibility of which the painting is the outcome. So it's language upon, like that, just upon every subject within Munch's work. So hit me, hit me with some of your questions. <laughs> uh, I got to ask, what was the experience of reading this? Like, are you, is he referencing individual pieces? And then if there are, are any pictures in the book that making you just like, look them up as you're reading yes. or okay so this was something that i was going to get to but you've hit the nail on the head oh okay. i would i would say to penguin random house you have not fully realized this book because it's so good and there are some selected paintings that are printed like kind of you know when a book has illustrations but they're only in the middle yeah <laughs> like those <laughs> that's things. a that's a book pet peeve for sure yeah, it's a little bit of a pet peeve, but also this book doesn't even have the full reference to all the different paintings that Nosgaard talks about. So shame on Penguin Random House. I wish that this book was kind of a more comp if this book was a giant art book, it would be much better because that was the one and only true struggle of reading this book was that, you know, I mentioned before that I'm at my grandpa's house, like on the beach in Reader's Paradise. And this isn't a book that I can ring that I can bring to the beach and just read willy nilly because my cell phone must be next to me to look up the different <laughs> images because and and that really breaks, you know, like it's that's not very nice. Like you want to be able to read a book ideally with nothing, maybe a pen or a cup of coffee by your side. But with this book, I was like, I have to have my phone and internet access to be able to look up everything that he's talking about, because he also interviews a few different painters and photographers and filmmakers. And if you're going to reference what Nosgaard is seeing in their pictures as it relates to Munch, you need to look up like literally every artwork that they talk about. And it got a little tiresome. So it's meant it's meant to be read at the museum. You're supposed to be there for a weekend. Possibly, but yeah, I mean, it's a little ridiculous. Like, they really should have... They, they. I think there could be a version of this in the future. It was only translated to English in 2019, but I would certainly buy a, a full edition of this, even if it was one of those fancy-schmancy art books that's huge, because um, it would definitely be worth it. Okay. Well, another question. What about... Um, does Nausgaard talk about... Uh, Munch's place in his, you know, favorite artists, or does he talk about artists that he likes more or like other artists that he, he appreciates that we know about? 
Yeah, he does. He taught he references some literature in here, which is really interesting. Um, there's a there's an author called uh, oh god, I don't want to forget the author's name. He wrote a book called Hunger. He's a Norwegian author, um, and there's there's a few books that he references and there's also a few um other painters and stuff but no he's very on the nose in the beginning basically saying listen this museum came to me and asked me to do this exhibit and he's kind of in the same boat as everyone else being like yeah i know about the scream and i know about a lot of other munch's paintings just being a norwegian person but then he basically says you know, when he was younger, he visits the, when he was a young man, he had visited the Munch Museum and kind of, he talks about the moment of coming face to face with a Munch painting in real life. And I think I've seen one or two Munch paintings in real life when I was living in London, but not to the, to the amount that Nosgaard has seen. And it's also interesting because he does, part of this book is not only just about the power that Munch's paintings have when you stand face to face with them, but also just the idea of why is a painting powerful because you stand face to face with it. So it's a little bit like, it's a little bit about Munch, but it's also a little bit about Nosgaard being like, what is that power? Um, some other really interesting biographical things about Munch that came up that I found really fascinating was, um, and I had really never even thought that this would be a possibility with a painter before, but it's really interesting. Munch actually, he had, he sold a lot of paintings throughout his life and he lived to know that he was a successful painter. Um, and he made, you know, lots of money off of his paintings and eventually lived in mansions surrounding himself with his work and everything like that. But what's really interesting to me is that he would often sell some of his most famous works and then repaint them for himself. <laughs> But not in the manner nice. of like, not in the manner of, oh, I sold the scream, so I want my own scream. He basically had, in the way that he is an icon to lots of people, he would also basically arrive at a composition. Like, there's one famous one called The Sick Child. There's another one called, like, uh, I think it's called, well, there's another one called Jealousy, another one called Anxiety, or A Woman Waiting in the Woods, I think is another one. And he would basically land on this composition, find it brilliant, and, and paint it. And then when he sold it for an exorbitant amount of money, he would just paint the same composition again, maybe with a few different colors, maybe in a few different styles. <laughs> but if you look up, you know, some of Munch's paintings, like if you type the sick child into Google, there will be like six different versions all by much which That's i think awesome. is i think is really cool and really fascinating another thing that was like a really hard-hitting thing in this book was um munch went through a lot of loss in his life like he lost his one of his sisters at an early age he lost his brother uh, that he was close to before um you know when they were in middle age and stuff like that and he painted several paintings that again munch being a very lonely person he painted several paintings, like he painted a painting of his brother reading by the window, and then literally 40 years later, after his brother has already passed away, he paints the same painting, but in like his new style, 40 years later. <laughs> it's extremely impactful. Like if you look at the two different like things, like what details like stood out to him, what was important to him, like in both paintings, his brother's ears are like a bright red because maybe his brother's ears were red and that's how he like remembered him and stuff. So it's very kind of tragic, but also really interesting. Um, and I want to talk about Munch's loneliness for a little bit because I found two different quotes that were 
that were really cool. Um, Munch was a lonely person. He didn't have many relationships in his life. And something that Nosgard talks about in this book is that how um, it may be true that throughout time, art students and art professors and people who study art kind of idealized him for that. Um, so I want to read two different quotes. Um, and I think, you know, they, this made a lot of sense to me. So page 12, this is Nosgard talking. When his mother's sister, who had been almost a mother to him, died towards the end of his life, he didn't attend the funeral, but witnessed it from a distance. He stood outside the churchyard wall looking in. So obviously, you know, Munch is someone who had an intense inner life and a very and and kind of couldn't handle some of his sadnesses and everything like that and now i'm going to read you a page from page 201 he is um interviewing a filmmaker named joshim trier no relation to lars von trier um so joshim says the munch who is idealized in a lot of the biographical literature is the munch who doesn't want to be among others but in his pictures, I see an enormous longing to be allowed to be among others. And that longing, I have to admit, when I look back at my films, it seems I have had myself. So Joachim there is touching on something that I think is 100% the truth. And it's not really, you know, so many people want to idealize the artist as somebody, oh, he was so amazing. He was alone by himself forever. But I think the real power was that he was absolutely desperate to be among sociable people um mm -hmm. but his ability his true ability was that he could paint those situations um <laughs> and, and in some ways relive them so he was just a really amazing person i will say like i said i had some criticisms about how the book was published um i think that in typical nosgard style some of the theories come across as pretty broad and there's some stuff that i underline that i was like that's like complete speculation like i'm not really 100 in agreement but i think that that's also probably one of the things about art criticism you know like you, any book that i'm going to read about munch from now on if i continue to read about him i'm probably going to disagree in one way or the other um but yeah i mean there's just a lot of really cool stuff in this book like i said uh Nosgard makes reference to a lot of literature a lot of um you know different artists he interviews photographers he interviews filmmakers he interviews other painters and what perspective um mostly Norwegians and and what would what their relation to Munch is so I got into insight into other people's careers and one thing that I wanted to call out before I read my one-star review was something I found really interesting in here was a perspective that Nosgard had on the idiot by Dostoevsky, which I um, have also, yeah, you know, I wouldn't have, I would have never read something that Nosgard had to say about the idiot if I didn't read this book about Munch. So I guess, you know, life is cyclical. Um, and another cool thing about Munch is that it is known that he read Dostoevsky and they say, apparently they say that he was reading the possessed on the last day of his life. So, you know, all, all roads point back to Dostoevsky if we can, if we can um, you know, reach the heights of, of the true master. And something he found, he says about the idiot, which is really interesting, was um, he's talking in relation to Munch, but he says, we learn almost nothing about his inner self, his thoughts or feelings. The important thing is the reactions he elicits from the people around him. Similar to how Dostoevsky's The Idiot is more about the reactions to the protagonist than it is to the protagonist himself, who is unchanging, but in the opposite way, 
unchangingly opening open and loving and when i read that i was like whoa i you know layers upon layers everything that i was reading in the idiot was about you know his anxiety and his blah 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 and how it hit me in my personal life but i had never thought about how it's really not about the main character but the reaction that everyone has to someone so unceasingly what i think dostoevsky would say christian but what i would also say is just good good and you know and trying to do the right thing um so i fear i've been i fear i've been talking about nosgard and and munch for a little bit over my time but i will say with confidence that so much longing in so little space that's a reference to how most of munch's paintings were of a smaller size he didn't really do murals and stuff like that um is my favorite nosgard book by far so um pick it up really fascinating nice where does where does it put munch among your favorite you know artists well it's it's definitely elevated him because the more you learn about a supposed master the more it's kind of like that i think there's that proust quote of like you don't know anything about a classic novel until you read it for yourself kind of that whole madame bovary syndrome so it's like yeah i mean munch went from someone for me who painted the scream just like everyone else knows him as to somebody where it's like okay obviously there's a reason why this guy was a master you know it's not like it's that funny thing of like when you go into a modern art museum and it's like oh that stupid like red dot is so mundane and it doesn't (laughs) engage me at all and then if you really learn about like the history of certain people like jackson pollock or whatever you're like oh yeah this guy is mind-blowingly awesome and that's why they are (laughs) where they are um so yeah who are your your top three who are your top three artists painters do you have one? Yeah, yeah. Do you have a, do you have a mental list? Um, ooh, you're putting me on the spot a little bit, but I really, <laughs> I really love Magritte. Do you know Magritte? Mm-hmm. So, so he had Magritte. He painted, you know, the guy with the bowler hat and the apple in front of his face. But he also painted a lot of his own self portraits. Are mind blowingly philosophical, and there's also some sad stories behind his paintings that are really good. Um, One of the covers covers for uh, Milan Kundera's novel. okay that's good yeah uh i am extremely fortunate to have seen van gogh in person and when people say to you that seeing van gogh in person changes things that is definitely true so i i gotta reappreciate even though everyone's like oh yeah van gogh is cool or whatever if you see his paintings in real life it's like jaw-droppingly amazing how the colors (laughs) are mixed and everything like that so i would say that you know van gogh gave me a new perspective on some things and um uh the last one i'm gonna have to say i have a minor 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 personal connection to but i used to work for a documentary filmmaker named andrew neal and his grandmother is a famous new york portrait painter named alice neal she she painted portraits of uh um andy warhol and a lot of uh you know families and people in spanish harlem you know before it was cool to live in spanish harlem so uh she she was just knowing her life story was was incredibly incredibly impactful nice yeah so top three right there <laughs> and i guess munch munch mate that uh, might uh knock out van gogh because munch is munch is intense van gogh everyone knows <laughs> everyone knows the deal um so my one star review is from john from goodreads and i have to say john that i edited your one star review because you're horrible at expressing your thoughts so uh i edited this a little bit for clarity yeah um, <laughs> sometimes you have to 
Yes. So John says, not quite possibly, but for sure, this is the worst book I've read in decades. There's lots of esoteric nonsense about art and in particular about Munch. If you want a book about him, buy something else, as the first 60 pages are rarely about him and the rest is totally baseless surmisings. So I'm sorry to mm, disagree. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to disagree with you, John. I think that Nasgard has lots of many interesting and amazing things to say about the creation of art, why we do it, and Munch's place in that spectrum. Nice. And just real quick to get ahead of the story, I'm going to say, I'm going to pronounce his name in a bunch of different ways. So you can't say we did it wrong. Okay. <laughs> munch, 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 muncha, monk, monk, munk, munk, munky, munka. Never go. Edward, Edward, <laughs> Eddie. <laughs> Awesome. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. This has been Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, the Apple Podcast app at SBR the Podcast. You can also email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Give us comments, suggestions, corrections, and whatever you're feeling, and we'll see you next time. See ya. <laughs>